Did you hear the one about the, let me see this, the lawyer, the banker, the financial broker, the eighth grader, the construction guy, did I say lawyer already? Uh, the uh, the court reporter. Who am I missing? Getting in a box and living for two weeks across the country. That's insane. But uh, there's like eight, nine, nine guys that are like getting ready to get in a box on Friday, called an RV, and they're going to be gone for like two weeks. So uh, they're going to travel, I know, as far as Las Vegas. <laughs> they're going to, this brings all sorts of movies up, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> oh my goodness. It's, uh, it's kind of awkward to think about, but uh, I'm sure that if uh, they videoed it, Netflix would probably pick it up. So, uh, But they're leaving uh, Friday, and honestly... I'm a little bit nervous just because they're taking my whole setup crew. So uh, I don't know what it's going to be like here the next two Sundays, but if you're not busy at 8 o'clock in the morning, we sure could use you. (laughs) That was a plea. Because this thing, seriously, this thing doesn't happen by itself. Like these chairs don't get to the, you guys do a great job at the end. Honestly, I don't even know how it gets set back up because I'm busy talking to people, but uh, in the morning, I know how it gets set up, and these guys get here early and set up the sound and stage and uh, audio and video and everything. So uh, I'm gracious for them every week. But Todd and I will be here in next two weeks, so uh, we're not traveling with them. But be praying for them. So uh, I'll probably bring them up to the end and make them pray over them or something. They'll, they'll definitely need it. Uh, <clears throat> We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus, and we're working our way through the Gospels. We're working our way through chronologically. We're taking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and just kind of like putting all their stories together in a timeline and making sense of what those four Gospels are all about. Like, we want to take Jesus from his birth all the way to his resurrection, which is at the end of the four Gospels. And so at this point, what has occurred is the Jews all the way back from Genesis chapter 3 have been waiting for the Messiah, looking for the Messiah, expecting the Messiah to come in a cape and defend them from all their enemies over the years and destroy their enemies. But now we have this this man who was born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, born of a carpenter's son, raised in Nazareth, not even Jerusalem, that's come along and said that he's their Messiah. I'm the man that you've been looking for all these hundreds and thousands of years, that you've thought was coming to save the world. I'm him, he says. And so now they're looking at him like there's no way this guy's our Messiah. No way. No possible way. But then he begins to do these great miracles like turning water into wine and healing people and people are talking and the news is spreading and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what we call uh, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, they're all like gathering and going, this can't be him. 
It's, it's got to be greater than this. And so we pick up the story of Jesus picking up more of his 12 disciples. He's already chosen a few and has gone to the first Passover in Jerusalem with them. But now he has traveled back to Galilee, which is the north part of Israel. And he's gathering more disciples. You know, and you say Jesus has like 12 disciples. I, there, there's more than that. You know, there's really like a hundred that probably followed him very closely and went out and, and, and taught the gospel after Jesus' death. But he was very close to these 12 men. These are the 12 men that were going to carry the gospel, the word, after Jesus was gone. And then the crazy thing is, is inside of those 12, he really had three that he was pretty close to, pretty tight with. And that would have been Peter, James, and John. So he had like a hundred, then he had like twelve, and then he had three, but then he even called one of them his beloved. Actually, he said beloved. We don't know who that beloved is, but we will all assume that it is John because John is the one in his book that writes about it. So John was his beloved. It even says that John was like at the Lord's Supper table laying there with his bosom on Jesus' chest. So, well, it says, as the, as the crowd, in Luke chapter 5, verse 1, it says, as the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by lake, I can't even say this, this was the Sea of Galilee, it was the Sea of Galilee. It was another name for the Sea of Galilee. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake, and the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down, and he was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. This is like this is like me going and hanging out with Big John at a construction site and telling him how to do things. It just it's just awkward. Like here's Jesus the rabbi the teacher and he's sitting here with the fishermen in their boat and he's like, "Hey, let's go do let's go do this." And Simon Peter's sitting there saying, mm, "I don't think this man knows much about fishing, but uh, I have respect for him. He says, Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Just because you said it, I'm going to do it this one time. And when they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. Now see, You've probably seen this on some of those survival shows where the guys actually take the nets and they just throw them out and they're weighted. They're weighted, they have a drawstring on them and they just kind of sink to the bottom. Then they pull that drawstring and they pull that drawstring and it kind of 
pulls that whole rope together at the bottom, and they just begin to pull their fish in. Well, they've been doing this all night long, casting everything else. And now they've done exactly what Jesus has said, and their nets begin to tear. Like, are you kidding me? He says, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Guys, we've got so much fish, we can't do this ourselves. We need help. They came and filled both boats so full, they began to sink. Now, I don't know what you think these boats are, how big you think these boats are, but uh, I would say that the boats may be twice the size of this stage in length. They're not that big. You probably get about three or four people in these boats to help manage the nets, but obviously they just pull them, the fish, the nets, right into these, these boats. So full that they begin to sink. Can you imagine working all night long and then all of a sudden you've just got so much fish you don't even know what to do with? When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. And said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. Now, <clears throat> I know what you're sitting there thinking. Well, that doesn't go along with his identity. If he's already a disciple of Jesus, if he's already a disciple of Jesus, then doesn't that conflict with his identity? Not at this point. Because I think at every point, we all have come to a place of salvation where we've said, Lord, I'm sinful. That we've recognized our sin. You see, that's what the law does. The law causes our sin to be perpetuated. It causes it to happen more. This is what happened with them as a Jew. We recognize that we're a sinner, and that's what separated us from the Lord. And at some point, you realize that you need a savior, somebody to save you from your sin. And this is what Peter has done right here. He's like acknowledging, I, I, I can't do this without you. I need you. And two, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't gone to the cross, but Peter's recognizing him as the Lord. He says, for he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they took. And so were James, John, Zebedee's sons, and who were Simon's partners. We'll read about them here in just a second. So I have to ask the question, did Peter come to his salvation because of the great works that he saw in catching fish? Or did he really believe that Jesus was the Messiah? They're still teenagers. They're still kids. They're still fishing with their dads. They're still learning to trade. I think that in the beginning stages that there had to be some doubt. There had to be some lack of faith. But at the same time, 
He recognizes it. You hear what I'm saying? There, there's growth that's going to happen here. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, don't be afraid. And literally, as we go through this next year teaching these Gospels, you're going to hear Jesus say that a lot. You're going to hear him say to these young teenage boys, don't be afraid. In other words, you need to settle the peace that has been given to you and rest in that. And he follows up, he says, from now on, you will be catching people. I asked the question, was Peter afraid of what he had just experienced? Or was he afraid of what Jesus had just said to him? You're not going to be catching fish, you're going to be catching people. What? There's a little fear in that as well. He says, then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and they followed him. And I jump to Matthew chapter 4, verse 21 and 22, and I back up a little bit in this story that we just read because Matthew says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee. Remember, we just read that. And his brother, John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father. These young men were still learning how to fish from their dad. In other words... They never got to be rabbis that they wanted to be. You see, because as I've told you in the past, probably in the last few weeks, that a good Jewish family raises their kid up hoping that their kid is like strong enough to learn the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then someday by the time they're 14, 15 years old that they've had the whole Old Testament memorized. And if they're that good, then hopefully that a rabbi will choose them and they'll, they'll, they'll teach them and mentor them for the next 14, 15 years and they'll be a rabbi about the age of 30. But these guys didn't make the cut. They went back to dad's trade of fishing. And all of a sudden, it says, they were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he, capital H, Jesus, called them. Immediately... They left the boat and their father and followed him. Again, you ask the question, did they follow him because they recognized him as the Messiah, the teacher, the rabbi? Or did they follow him because, hey, I've got an opportunity to be a rabbi. This man wants to take me on and teach me. It had to be somewhat selfish, but at the same time, there had to have been this recognition that, yes, this is the Messiah. And then we jump back to Luke chapter 5. As soon as this happened, here it comes. It says in verse 12, While he was in one of the towns, this is up northern Sea of Galilee, up in Capernaum, in that whole area. A man was there who had a serious skin disease all over him. This is known as what? Leprosy. And at this point, we're talking about it's fully developed. To a point of grossness. Did this man have a mother? Think about this for a second. Did he have a mother? Of course he did. 
You think his mother loved him? I bet she sure did. You think his mother figured out a way to touch him? I bet she sure did. I bet it was a lot of work. And here's the thing that uh, my Savior understands. <clears throat> we... You, you, some of you can sympathize with this. Some of you can sympathize with the whole leprosy thing because even in today's world, uh, some of your issues become public knowledge. Not necessarily a sin issue, maybe a health issue, maybe a situation itch issue or something like that, but it becomes public knowledge and people avoid you because of it. So some of you in this room may be able to sympathize with that. But watch this. This man comes to Jesus. He saw Jesus. He fell face down and he begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You remember last week, we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 27, Jesus was speaking in red letters. It says, And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, yet not one of them was healed. Only Naaman the Syrian. He's Syrian, meaning this, that he was a Gentile. Syria was an enemy of Israel. He wasn't a Jew. If Naaman was the only one that was healed, there has never, ever, ever been a Jew that has been healed of a skin disease mentioned in the Scripture. Naaman was mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 5. So the Pharisees had obviously taught, the Pharisees had obviously taught that if someone comes along and they heal a Jew from leprosy, that that's one of the first signs that it could be the Messiah. Because no one has ever, ever done that. Never, ever throughout this whole scripture has anybody been healed as a Jew from leprosy. And the Pharisees taught that. So if this man who is a Jew, knew that's what the Pharisees taught. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you're willing, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Did this leper believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Absolutely he did. You are the Messiah. Watch this. Reaching out his hand, he touched him. He touched him. How many times has that leper been touched in his life? Not enough. I, I believe that touching is important. Like, I, I literally believe, as a youth minister, you have, there, there's, <laughs> explain, there's good touch and there's bad touch. <laughs> I get that. 
But as a youth as a youth minister for 15 years, I honestly believe that a kid could go to uh, go to school all day long and nobody ever touch him. I believe that they could go all all week long and a parent never touch them. So when they would come to church on Sunday mornings, my whole deal and Mark and Ann and Michelle and everybody can attest to it was I'm going to touch them in some way. I may punch them in the shoulder, I may but I'm going to literally touch these kids because a touch is important. Absolutely. We believe touch is important here, right? Troy, right? Touch is important. Good touch, bad touch, Troy. (laughs) It's good to touch people. Because they may have never been touched all week long. This man hadn't been touched in a long time. And I'm sure that Jesus put all five fingers on this leper. He may have even grabbed him with both hands. And everybody went, He says, reaching out his hand, he touched him, saying, I'm willing. Be made clean. He just spoke it. Be made clean. And immediately the disease left him. Like you're sitting there watching him. Jesus has got his hand on him. He says, I'll do this. Be made clean. And all of a sudden that just skin just heals right in front of everybody. Like you can literally see this thing. Because it, it said that this, the disease was all over him. Now all of a sudden these people are watching this thing and they're going, Unbelievable. It's never happened before. Jews never been healed before. Wait a second. That's one of the first messianic miracles that they've taught. No Pharisee had ever touched this leper. <laughs> and then watch this. This is awesome. Then he ordered him, ordered him to tell no one. <laughs> These people had just sat there and watched this thing happen, right? It's like you, you've just watched this amazing event happen right in front of you, and he's like, don't go tell anybody. That ain't going to happen, right? But he didn't want anybody to know because he knew his time hadn't come yet, and if this thing like exploded and everybody was talking about it, then the timing of this whole thing was going to be thrown off. And so he's like, don't, I order you not to tell anybody. But here's what I want you to do. I want want you to go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses prescribed for your cleansing as a testimony to them. This is awesome. Because if you go all the way back, you know when you start reading the Bible through, Genesis, Exodus, and you get to... Leviticus, there's like all these laws, 613 laws that are just like, oh, you just stop reading through the Bible in a year (laughs) because you got to Leviticus. And uh, Jesus says, I want you to go back to the priest and I want you to tell him that you've been made clean 
and the priest has to go to Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, and he has to go through all these different rituals to ceremonially say, yeah, you're healed, you're clean. Now, that's funny. That's funny. Like, Jesus is like sending the, he's like, don't go tell anybody, but you go back to the priest, and he makes sure that he does this thing because that priest's jaw is just going to go, and he's going to have to go back to Leviticus and, like, look this thing up. Watch what it says. Leviticus chapter 14, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses. This was law. Spoke to Moses. This is the law concerning the people afflicted with skin disease on the day of his cleansing. Like Jesus healed him. Never been done before. They've never had to read Leviticus 14 before. He is to be brought to the priest who will go outside the camp and examine him. Take him outside. If the skin disease has disappeared from the afflicted person, the priest will order that two live clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the one who is to be cleansed. Then the priest will order the one of the birds be slaughtered over fresh water in a clay pot. He is to take the live bird together with the cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop and dip them all into the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. If I'm a priest, I'm sitting here like taking notes. You know, you've got your grocery list, and then you just keep going back. What's the recipe say? He will then sprinkle the blood seven times on the one who is to be cleansed from the skin disease. He is to pronounce him clean and release the live bird over the open courtyard side. The one who is to be cleansed must wash his clothes, shave off all of his hair, and bathe with water. He is clean. Afterward, he may enter the camp. He must remain outside his tent for seven days. So Jesus sends him to the priest, and this is like a seven-day process to be ceremonial clean. Verse 9, it says, He's to shave off all of his hair again on the seventh day, his head, his beard, his eyebrows, and the rest of his hair. He's to wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He is clean. This is crazy. This is why you quit reading Leviticus. Oh, I, I jumped to 14. Watch this. 14 says, The priest is to take some of the blood from the restitution offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed on the thumb of his his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. I think God had a sense of humor. I mean, that's just crazy, right? It goes on for 32 verses. 32 verses of how to cleanse this leper. And Jesus sends him back and says, you go back and do this. And it, it's going to be awesome because they're going to like, they're going to have to recognize that I am the Messiah. Like, if this is the process, you've been healed, you've been cleansed, and you're the first Jew to ever have that experience, surely they'll recognize now that I'm the Messiah. What more can I do for them to see this? So the priest then performs his duties on this cleansed man. And all of a sudden, all the other priests are talking. They all gather. Hey, we said, our forefathers have said that if this is the case, then this is probably the Messiah. 
So if that's the case, we need to start watching him. Remember we talked about this, the first stage is just to observe. Just to observe, the second stage was to ask questions. So now, obviously, he's done one of those messianic miracles, and they are going to go observe Jesus. It says in verse 15, But the news about him spread even more, and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places, and he prayed. I mean, it is going nuts. He's healing people. People are coming from all over the area just to be healed. People that are like hearing about this that have diseases all their life and have just come with the hope of their Savior, the Messiah, healing them. Yet I... I just love the fact that he goes away. There's a lot of there's a lot of energy that goes out in ministry. And sometimes you just need to get away. Sometimes you just need to like chill out. And he does that. He hangs out with his father. Me and the father watched a lot of baseball yesterday. Just chilled out. I saw the cycle. Luke chapter 5 says this. This is another great story. On one of those days while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. (laughs) Did you hear that? On one of these days when he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. What were they doing? Observing. This dude healed a Jewish man of leprosy. It says, They were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. That's a big deal. For people to come from Jerusalem to Galilee, you don't go to Galilee. But now all of a sudden these Pharisees are coming up. Man, if this is the Messiah, we've got to check this thing out. It was a big deal for the Pharisees to come to Galilee. And it says, And the Lord's power to heal them was in him. Just then, some men came carrying on a mat a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof And they lowered him on the mat through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. You got this small little home. Small little home. And it's crowded. I I feel, I think back to your your mom's house, 900 square foot home with nine of you all living in that. This was probably smaller than that. And it's packed. And Jesus is like... Just people are standing in line. Heal me, heal me. Jesus, Jesus, Messiah, Savior. He's just being called out, called out, called out. And these guys bring this paralytic man and they can't get in, so we just decide, let's go through the top. These are the guys that I want to hang out with. These these are the guys that are like, no matter what it takes, we're going to make it happen. That, that, that's my friends. That's my friends. No matter what it takes, we'll figure out a way to get you to Jesus. And then watch this. That'll cut off here in a second. 
It says, seeing their, their faith, seeing their faith. How did the paralytic man get to Jesus? It wasn't because he walked there. It was because his friends brought him there, right? So Jesus said, I see their faith. It took like, if it's four dudes that was like carrying him, Jesus is like saying, these are the guys with faith. They're the ones that brought him here. He says, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Uh-oh. Pharisees are doing what? Observing. What, the high priest, these are the guys that do the sacrifice. They're the ones that do the atonement of sins every year. These are the guys, right? And Jesus just says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't even like say atone for. He says forgiven. And here's what I'll tell you from what I know. If I teach you that you have to take all 66 books and you have to filter them so that they all make sense together, Jesus doesn't forgive sins based upon his one statement. Did you hear that? Like, based upon what I'm reading here in the scripture, is that Jesus just can't like show up and say, your sins are forgiven and disappear. He can't do that. Because from what I understand is that it takes a perfect sacrifice for sins to be forgiven. And Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. He lived the law. He obeyed the law. He was perfect in every way. And he came and he died on the cross. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. He was buried and he rose again. He sits with the Father. And it's through that belief right there that our sins are forgiven. And based upon him knowing what was to occur, he was able to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven because I know what's going to happen. It's kind of interesting because we see that Abraham back in Genesis 17, he he was credited righteousness. Like, he wasn't made righteous. He was credited righteousness because of his belief. That was before the cross. But now here's this paralytic man that says, hey, your sins are forgiven even before the cross. I don't think, according to all 66 books, that Jesus' words were strong enough to forgive him of his sins. It was based upon him knowing that he was going to the cross and his blood would be poured out. And then verse 21, it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think. (laughs) They're processing, you know, those thoughts that come to your head. They're thinking inside their head. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? They're not saying this out loud. They're just thinking. They're just observing. We're just here to observe. We're not here to ask questions. But this guy just says that he forgives sins. That's impossible for him to do. Now he's blaspheming our God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Total observation. 
Then verse 22, but perceiving their thoughts, you know what that means? By reading their minds, Jesus is reading the minds of these Pharisees. Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking this in your hearts? Like, why are you thinking that I'm blaspheming God? Like, Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. He's like, why do you not believe? Why are you guys thinking that I am not the Messiah? He says this. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, get up and walk? If I were to sit here and say, your sins are forgiven, that's just a statement. You choose whether to believe that truth or not, right? The paralytic guy had to believe whether that was truth or not. But if I were to say to the paralyzed man, get up and walk, and he got up and walked, you're going to see that and you're going to go, oh, wow. There's a total difference. And he's sitting there like going, what is your faith based upon? What I am saying or based upon what I am doing? How how could Jesus prove that he's the Messiah? They're not going to believe him based upon what he's saying. That statement would be questioned left and right. But a physical manifestation of healing right before their very eyes, that'll get them. And he says, But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Those of you that are thinking, how can he do this? How can he forgive sins? He's like, I'm telling you, I'm the Son of Man here on earth. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up and pick up your mat and go home. You want me to prove to you that I'm the Messiah? You get up, get your mat, and go home. That'll get the Pharisees to believe, right? Jesus was like literally forcing the Sanhedrin to believe and to decide who he was at that very moment. Verse 25, immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. That is like sends chills down my back. Jesus says, get up. I'm going to use you to show these guys that I'm the Messiah. He rolls up his mat, walks out, and he, what's he doing? What's a paralyzed do, what's a paralyzed guy doing? He's running, he's jumping, he's he's skipping. He's doing everything he can to go home and he's like, "Look what the Lord did to me. Look. Look what I can do." Like literally 10 minutes ago I couldn't even like move. Watch this. Then everyone was astounded and they were giving glory to God and they were filled with they were filled with awe. Like how, how do you even describe what has just occurred? He's healed a Jewish leper. He's healed this paralyzed man and everybody's just like literally 
it's if if I could just experience that every day just like be in total amazement of what God's done that whole awe thing I think we go about our lives every day just normal lives and we never have that moment we're missing out we're literally missing out on the awe of God it, it, trust me it's happening all around you it is happening all around you let's sit down for coffee I'll, I'll tell, Brandon will tell you about the awe of God he's always calling man I gotta tell you this story what God did today that's what we need to be sharing is like this whole awe of God stories. You wouldn't believe what he's done. And then we close up with this, just uh, Matthew. <laughs> Matthew was what? Tax collector. He's going to get one more disciple. Watch this. This is awesome. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, paralytic men's house, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Everybody hated the tax man, right? Even the Pharisees hated the tax man. They ripped you off all the time. They would overcharge you. They would lie. They would steal from your taxes. And so he sees Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he says to him, Hey, follow me. <laughs> He's got fishermen that have already like gone back to their father's trade. He's got these young guys, and now he's got this tax man that nobody likes. Hey, come follow me. Come hang out with me for the next few years. So we got up and followed him. <laughs> That's all it says. He got up and followed him. Matthew, the tax collector, just believed he's the Messiah. Like salvation came at that very point. So like, Charlie, you remember when this whole thing like clicked on for you? It was like a party, right? That's what Matthew decided to do. He decided to have a party. <laughs> Jesus comes to town, the Messiah, the teacher, the rabbi, the Savior, and he says, hey, I want you to come hang out with me. Matthew, he doesn't know any better. He's like, we're having a party. Watch this. <laughs> it says, while he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. <laughs> Matthew gets saved, and he invites all of his tax collector friends and prostitutes and sinners and he says, we're going to have a party because Jesus wants me to hang out with him. How cool is that? And who's watching all this? The Pharisees. They're observing. They're hanging out. They're like going, what in the world is this? This is the Messiah? This is supposed to be the Messiah? And he's hanging out with tax collectors and he's hanging out with prostitutes and he's partying with them? Ah, oh, there's no way he's the Messiah. Messiah. 
says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, uh, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> the disciples, oh, <laughs> they're just kids, you know, all right, teenagers. I don't know, it's kind of cool, I think. But now what have they done? We've moved on to the second stage. We're not only observing, we're starting to ask questions. That was not a question that was like in their heads. They literally asked the disciples, why is he hanging out with sinners? Why is he hanging out in a bar? And he closes. But when he heard this, he said, those who are well don't need a doctor. But the sick do. Like, where else would you expect me to be hanging out? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous. And here, the righteous that he's talking about are the self-righteous which would be the Pharisees. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to hang out with those who need me. See, there's a lot of hurting people that never get touched. There's a lot of people that get avoided in their life just maybe because of their jobs. And Jesus says, I came here for those people. I came here that they may know that I am the Messiah, that I am the one that's going to save them from their sins. And you know the crazy thing is? They're the ones that will believe. They're the ones that will believe that I am who I say I am. Father, I pray that uh, as we continue to stroll through your word, that it is so evident, so evident. You are who you say you are. That you are the Lord of those in this room. That not only that you're the Savior, the Messiah, but you are the Lord, that you're the boss of us, that you give us the ability to understand your word. You give us the desire to be obedient to your word. And that you even cause us to be obedient to your word, that you would do that in us. For, Father, we know if we do it in our own strength, in our own self-righteousness, we fail. So upon your word, upon what you have given us in the spirit, I trust that you will do great things of all this week in these people. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.